I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to a conversation on Colloquium. Thank you for joining us. Today, I've got Julie Wald. It's a real treat for me. One, because her book is phenomenal and we're going to talk a lot about it. But two, she is one of my best friends in Nashville's sister. So it's always kind of fun when you can combine in a business and friendship in one. So Julie, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to give a brief rundown on Julie and then we're going to go right into it. So Julie is a wellness practitioner for over 25 years. She's the founder, CEO, and chief wellness officer at Namaste New York. She has a master's degree in social work from NYU. She began her career in 1995 as a clinical social worker, treating adults, children, and adolescents in inpatient and outpatient mental health settings. And in the process of building her mental health practice, she also pursued her personal wellness objectives and in so doing became a certified yoga instructor along with a lot of other things. And the master of these disciplines has combined with an intense fascination for Eastern wisdom and proven to be invaluable assets to professional path. So that's a lot. What I really want to get into is when I was reading your book and I'm a 38 year old white guy who's in finance. And pre-COVID was grinding a lot, traveling, getting up early, trying to cram in as much as I possibly could in the day. I've got two little kids, a wife who works. The biggest thing that struck me right off the bat was talking about how abundance does not necessarily equate with success or wellness. And the realization and the self-reflection by me that even though I have really nice things, I live in a nice house, I belong to a nice country club, we don't really have any needs or wants. I often find myself thinking that all of these material things that I have or these memberships that I have, they don't really bring me much joy or happiness. And I don't spend a lot of time reflecting on that because it makes me sad. But I do think it's a conversation that 
for people who are in that 35 to 55 year old demographic, it's a conversation that we, we should be having. I think it's important. So maybe if you could expound on that a little bit, that, that concept and how you fleshed it out with some of your clients and people in your network. Absolutely. So, you know, it's really, really interesting because back when we started our business, and this was back kind of in the early 2000s, officially we start, started in 2003, I really ended up in living rooms and offices with some of the highest performers, most, you know, incredibly brilliant and wonderful people in the world, quite frankly. And one of the things that became really, really clear to me after sort of doing this work for a number of years is that again and again, people would come and say, I've achieved X, Y, and Z. I've met my financial goals. I've exceeded my financial goals. I've gained all the letters and the titles that I want after my name. All of these resume items that check the box and say, you know, but somehow I'm just not feeling as good as I thought I would feel. And this oftentimes came particularly after sort of a hyper focus on that external achievement or external wealth for a period of time, which in many ways was the greatest strength of these people, this intense focus, this intense commitment, this intense drive, this intense intelligence, all of those things are huge strengths. But it was those exact same things that became liabilities in terms of cultivating what we call just like that internal resource. So they were really good at creating external resource. But in the meantime, the internal resources were kind of ignored and and under cultivated. And then at a certain point in life, inevitably, things get hard, things get stressful, either you're in the middle of a challenging time in your relationship, or, you know, with a child who's struggling, or confronting a even a professional relationship, that's not what you had hoped it would be. And all of a sudden, that gaping hole, that space becomes a huge pain point in terms of those internal resources. And that was oftentimes when I would meet people. And sometimes it would be because these issues would manifest physically, like suddenly there would be chronic back pain or chronic migraine headaches or insomnia and things like that. And other times people would just come and say, I feel really good about a lot of things in my life, but I simultaneously feel like I lost the plot. And what do I do with that? Yeah, I must admit reading the section about Ethan, which again, I really encourage everyone to read this book. It's tremendous. The quote that I wrote down on my outline is, I have it all, but I'm not happy. Is this all there is? And when does my life begin? And that, you know, (laughs) those thoughts go through my head a lot because I've had moments myself where, to exactly your point, you internally have signposts that you say, once I hit this kind of wealth level, or once I become partner, once I become managing director, once I do this big of a deal, once I have this much AUM, whatever that accomplishment is, you store all this value in it. And some of the saddest moments of my life is, is when I've achieved those internal accomplishments because I realize nothing's actually changed. And all that perceived value that I put into that accomplishment kind of evaporates. So at least for me, and I think it's endemic within my peer group is, okay, well, then let's just put another zero on it and go for that. 
because that's what's been driving you for for years. And I don't think it's the healthiest way to live is mm-hmm. what I've discovered, especially after spending a lot of time reading material that you've provided, folks like Brene Brown. I just think there has to be more to it. And this book really details how you can gain that kind of inner wealth that you talk about in the book. So kudos to you. It really does speak to a to a huge issue, I think, that's within our population of people, especially white men who just don't have the vocabulary to explain some of the emotions they're experiencing. Has that been your experience as well, talking to a lot of other people within the finance world? Absolutely. In fact, you know, for many, many years, you know, my company does both corporate wellness as well as we work with sort of high-performing executives. And particularly in the field of finance, that was sort of that prototype that that we would see again and again and again, this theme that would come up again and again and again. And And it happens in other industries, but I think when you're dealing, for example, with people in a startup world, or, you know, they're more braced for failure and they're, you know, it's a different type of mentality. It's a little bit more, if you're familiar with Carol Dweck's work, it's a little more of like a growth mindset. And, you know, whereas I found that oftentimes a lot of the clients that I would end up working with sort of had a fixed, what's called a fixed mindset, which is they sort of believe that they came into the world with a series of strengths and capabilities and not other strengths and capabilities, meaning like maybe you fancied yourself to be good with numbers or, you know, have good earning potential or whatever it is, but maybe you never really thought about your capacity for something like empathy or spirituality or even something like athleticism. It depends on who you are and who you're talking to. Some people have spent their entire life, you know, just with their head in a book and they never thought that they could get joy from their bodies, for example. So when we think of that mindset, you know, you you kind of come into the world and then you're constantly sort of up against what you come to the table with and the prospect of failure. And it's kind of like one or the other. And when you have a growth mindset, you know, you believe that you are constantly evolving. And when we believe that we're constantly evolving, there's really no destination, but it's about that commitment to continually learning and growing. And I think that people who can approach their lives from that perspective just become so much more open and spacious to exploring and developing the different aspects of themselves that ultimately lead to the cultivation of inner wealth or that sense of inner abundance, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Could you, for the listeners, define inner wealth and how that interlaces with this concept of the four pillars that you spell out in the book? Absolutely. So, you know, the four pillars are really the fundamental ingredients that we have found are sort of the baseline for a healthy, happy life. So meaning that without these four pillars, it doesn't mean that you can't have a lot of joy, you know, but there's an imbalance. The foundation is the fundamentals are not intact. And those four pillars are movement, stillness, connection, and nourishment. So that's movement, stillness, connection, and nourishment. 
And really, these are the fundamental ingredients that a newborn baby needs to thrive. And nothing changes throughout the life cycle. So we, you know, oftentimes, and I see this with my own kids who are teenagers, even as early as, you know, sort of grade school, parents forget that the importance of, for example, making sure that a child gets enough stillness, gets enough rest in their life. They're just going, going, going. They're running to school, to sports practices. You know, then they come home and they have homework and they're burning the candle at both ends. And even kids as young as, you know, middle school are are struggling with an imbalance in these four pillars. Fast forward to college and working in banking or whatever you may find yourself, you know, you're certainly not paying attention to the four pillars at that point the foundation gets wobbly. And then you start piling stressors on top and you know our ability to function in what's called our window of tolerance for stress gets weakened. So we're not able to find resilience around stress and it starts beating us down. That's when we don't sleep so well, we eat too much, all these other things. So the four pillars are the fundamentals and they're really personal to people. So Movement might look like playing tennis for one person. It might look like yoga for another person. It might like just look like doing some stretches in, you know, your chair at work for others. It's it's going to be different for all of us depending on our age, our stage of life, our interests. The same thing goes with stillness. Stillness might be meditation. It might be getting enough sleep at night. It might be just taking time to take a bath. It might be taking a moment to journal right before bed, but giving ourselves a little bit of spaciousness and time for reflection. It's really the other half of all of the movement in our life. It's that time to restore and process everything that we're doing, doing, doing. Like when you were flying all over the country all the time, my guess is you didn't have a lot of time to process all of those experiences on any level, physically, mentally, you're just go, 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 go. The other half of all that going is that recovery time. Then we get to connection, which is really obviously all about our relationships and our ability to be connected to the meaningful people in our life. But it's really also about showing up authentically. So in order to really connect, you have to be real. And then the fourth component is nourishment, which has a lot to do with food, but it also has a lot to do with all of the other ways that we nourish ourselves, you know, through music, through art, through creative endeavors. Some people like love to cook or whatever it might be, but it's really interesting to see how when we fill ourselves up in these different ways, we're coming with a fully loaded tank and our ability to manage stressors and difficult situations gets a lot easier. So those are the four pillars. When we talk about inner wealth, it's when the soil is rich with those, where you have movement practices that you call on. You're committed to stillness in your life. You're committed to staying connected. You're committed to nourishing yourself. And it's integrative. It's become habitual for you because it's like really about a fundamental commitment to certain ingredients or practices because you know that is going to be a recipe for health and happiness. And when you have inner wealth, when you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed, you just open up your little toolkit. It's like a bank account of resources. And you know that 
okay, I'm going to lean on my support system right now because I'm connected. Or I know that if I go out for a run, it's going to make me feel a lot better. Or actually, if I just take five deep breaths before walking into this really stressful meeting, I will feel exponentially more prepared on a personal level to face the challenges that await me. And so it's, it's when we cultivate these pillars or these ingredients in our lives, we end up with this amazing bank account of tools that we can call on that help us find resiliency. And not only that, but feel that sense of fullness and abundance so that if, you know, God forbid we lost our job or our fortune or, you know, who knows what's going to happen in this world, right? That we know that we have the internal resources to be okay. It's it's really beautiful and well said. And I can see it in my son who is seven in second grade, and he has been taught to your point. He has a toolkit of things that he can access when he's feeling overwhelmed, when he's feeling stressed. He has a, a pre-sleep you know sleep process that he goes through. And those just were never conversations that we had, right? It was, you know, if you weren't feeling well or you weren't happy, it was work harder. We don't talk about that go out, make money, money will make you happy. I don't ever recall really kind of talking about mindfulness or having kind of emotional vocabulary accessible to navigate all this. And it just kind of felt like you were put into the world, figure it out. And I love how you're giving people access to these tools. My question is when you're dealing with this population that we've been discussing, how do you prevent them from approaching the four pillars the same way that they've historically approached their work and becoming obsessed with it where they have to achieve a certain pose in yoga or they have to do a certain amount of meditation a day. Do you bump up against that? And if so, how do you deal with it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think, you know, by nature of the way that the pillars balance each other out, if all of the pillars are being practiced at the same time, it helps manage that tendency towards the extremes, right? So for example, you may be a really intense athlete and want to achieve at a really high level in terms of your athletic endeavors, which is great. But if that's so overemphasized that your reflective practices, your stillness practices, your ability to stay connected, you know, if those things are suffering, then something is out of balance. And this is very common. Usually we have one or two pillars that is more dominant than the other. You know, we all, nobody's sort of evenly distributed between all of the pillars. We're just people and we have our preferences and our tendencies, but we find that when they work in synchronicity with each other, it tends to create more of a balanced approach to things. So that's the idea is that they sort of have to make space for one another. I also find that when we come to the table with intention around things, around what the purpose of these practices are, I think that's really, really, really important. So I think helping people get in touch with their why helps us manage that tendency towards overachieving. Because usually when we're talking about this demographic and we're talking about a goal 
or a focus on cultivating inner wealth, it's really oftentimes more emphasized around pillars like stillness and connection (laughs) and the stuff that lends itself to perhaps if we're talking about like yin and yang, if all of that achievement is kind of yang energy, we're educating people on the fact that they need more of that yin energy, more of that softening, more of that surrender, more of that slowing down, that that's actually the missing ingredient in their world when we look at the four pillars. So oftentimes somebody comes and they say, you know, I'm not okay. We start by mapping out the four pillars and seeing, you know, where they're inherently and naturally strong and where they're less strong. And that's how we figure out sort of where to begin. I could use more stillness in my life. And I think a lot of us could. I want to transition into this idea of the art of living, which I spent a lot of time on this section. And I just, I just want to read a quote, which struck me that the ability to be on the journey itself, as opposed to yearning for a past or future that doesn't yet exist, makes every moment and every day the most important one. And, and I know for me, nostalgia can be an extremely powerful drug, and it has a way of being warped pretty significantly when you look back at these various periods of your life. And relatedly, like we talked about earlier, you assign this huge value to things in the future life will be great once I have the beach house. Life will be great once I have this car, once I build this house, et cetera. But it's kind of a false promise. So how do you teach people to actually be present and to to live that balanced life? Probably an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Yeah. Two thoughts. that came, Well, the first thought that comes to mind, first and foremost, a one word answer is mindfulness, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that. And another sort of what came to my mind as you were saying that, as you were going through like, well, when I just have the beach house and when I just have that car, because it's so common and prevalent, you know, I I had this thought of like, how many things can I take away in my life and still be happy, right? Like, so if you think about the opposite, like what if I took away my car and took away my big fancy house and took like, how simple can I get and still be happy? that's an achievement. But meaning being able to think about it in that way, it's it's really about actually like the stripping off, you know, how many layers do I have to peel off in order to get to an experience where I just feel, I feel a sense of joy because I feel the feeling of my breath breathing. And I feel the feeling of the air against my skin and a bird you know, off in the distance. And, and when we can be fully present in that moment, the happiest people that I know are able to practice that presence really consistently. And the way that they are able to do that is because they've been practicing meditation, mindful meditation, or there's a lot of forms of meditation, but the one that I like to focus on is mindfulness because it's just super simple. And at the end of the day, that practice of returning again and again and again to the present moment. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's what I think is the kind of training that is necessary to be able to sort of drop into the moment in the middle of a business meeting or drop into the moment when we're about to lose our temper with our kids in those challenging real life moments, a mindfulness practice will really help. It's about learning to be responsive rather than reactive 
moment to moment. It's about learning to compartmentalize a lot of our anxieties and not over identify with them. Meaning that a lot of the drive that people have can oftentimes come from an underlying anxiety. And the more that we can sort of witness that in ourselves and not be so attached to our perception of ourself and our identity of ourself, it helps us take ourselves a little less seriously, which helps, you know, in mindfulness, we talk a lot about kind of like bearing witness to ourselves. It's almost like you step out of yourself and you see yourself. And when you do that, you're able to be much more responsive and much less reactive moment to moment, day to day. And that helps. This isn't a question, but I just want to quote it. I want to live in a way where a simple, normal day is beautiful and enough. I love that because, and well, we can get into it now if you want, but I've been doing a lot of reading and homework and exploration about how social media is impacting our mindfulness and impacting our mental health. And I can be hyperbolic from time to time, my wife will tell me, but I do think, and I, I worry about how it will impact our children. I really do think a lot of the issues we're having today are associated with this concept of people portraying this quote unquote perfect life or idealized lifestyle through these avatar platforms of social media. And the reality is when, when you actually know those people or when you see those people, they're some of the saddest, most empty people I know oftentimes. I really like your remark, which I need to think on more, but they probably are really driven by fear and anxiety. And I learned from law school that you know fear is a motivator over the short term, but long term, it will just burn you out. It's true. Anxiety is actually, I mean, fear, stress, anxiety, all of those things can be very helpful. And many times we, our proudest accomplishments in life come from moments that we've had to overcome from stressful times, from times that have made us anxious. And that's okay. It's, there is such thing as sort of optimal stress. When stress becomes long-term, chronic, that's when it starts to become really, really debilitating. And one of the things that's that's so hard for people is that, you know, oftentimes it's the same exact qualities that have made us so successful. You know, as I mentioned earlier, like our greatest strengths can really be our greatest weaknesses. And so from a very young age, we've gotten all of this positive feedback from the world around, you know, being a high achiever, getting perfect grades, being a pleaser, whatever it is, it's different for everybody. It becomes very scary to operate in another way because we don't know what the outcome is going to be or how the world is going to respond to that. It's very easy to fall into that patterning because we've gotten such reinforcement for so many years. And and again, it's not necessarily all bad. There's some really wonderful things about, you know, those same qualities that drive us to that external achievement, but it's just not enough. I think going back to your earlier comment, it comes back to how we define success, right? And if we have this older version of success, which equates to things it's going to be hard to achieve a level of success where you feel comfortable because there's always more to obtain, right? In a materialistic society, 
there's always the next shiny object to go chase. And, you know, especially in financial services and professional services, it took me a long time to realize it, but it's an odd world when your job and the value creation for your job is directly correlated to the amount of time you spend on something and not the product that you create. And I feel like my dad falls into this trap. He's probably never going to listen to this, but he's an attorney. For him, working hard meant working a lot. Right. I mean, those two things are interchanged and, and they don't have to be, I don't think, for a lot of people. No, there is definitely such a thing as working smart instead of working hard and figuring out how to work smart is what we find you know, makes people truly happy because they're able to really optimize their time. And oftentimes people feel that when they're, when they start to incorporate the four pillars into their lives, that, that they actually just become so much more efficient, more productive, more clear, more creative. I'll never forget. I had a friend who we did business with, who had this amazingly successful fund and he he was an incredible negotiator and also a good friend. And and we were doing a big program for his firm. And he said, you know, let's take a walk and talk about it. And I said, like, it was sort of a negotiation. We were discussing the program. And I said, you sure you want to walk and talk? I said, because then I won't be able to really take notes. And he said, well, anything worth remembering, you'll remember at the end of the walk. And yes, let's definitely do a walk and talk. And I said, he said, I find that it's just really, really helpful for my creative thinking and just overall just makes me feel so much better. And this was many, many, many years ago. And I've had a number of experiences like this throughout the years. But the idea was that if we walk and talk, we're going to have, we're going to, the outcome is going to be much better. We're going to have, we're going to be happier. We're going to be having more fun. We're going to feel invigorated. We're going to be outside in nature. And the quality of our ideas is going to be a lot better. Well, most grinders don't grind while walking through Central Park, but he, one of the most successful financiers in the world, felt really strongly that this was the way to go. And after that, you know, it's become a theme for me, but it was just a really sort of beautiful example about how, you know, you don't, sometimes the greatest work isn't going to come out of kind of the most grinding, unpleasant experience that you can create, that actually, if you can create an environment that is conducive to well-being, the quality of your thoughts, your ideas, your decisions, your conversations is going to be much better. And the outcome of that will be both a greater connection to your internal resources, as well as cultivating more external resources, aka money, because you know, you've had a really high quality conversation. Yeah, I, I know I personally, one of the positive takeaways from, from COVID has been, you know, I used to travel a lot. And even when I was home, I would get up at 4.10 in the morning and go to the gym at five. And I've realized over the last six plus months that that's just not the natural rhythm of my body. I associated getting up early with being productive. And that was a huge value for me passed down from my father and kind of my peer group. But I've realized I'm actually much more productive and I create much more value for my company if I get a more natural sleep cycle. It took a pandemic for me to get comfortable with that, but I don't think I'll ever go back to the other way. But when you're living in that world every day and everybody around you is living that same lifestyle, it's scary to do something different. And 
beyond just the judgment they could pass, there's there potentially could be implications from your your business career as well. I want to switch to <laughs> being a former attorney. I like this this pencils down concept. Mm-hmm. And what I have kind of the corollary I drew was the busy trap. I'm going to quote again. We don't like going into a place of nothingness because we have to face ourselves. So we fill our time with appointments, activities, and apps, but we're running on a treadmill that's a race to nowhere day after day after day. And that could not be more true for a lot of people that I know that are pretty close in my life is I ardently believe that they fill their day, including the weekends, with as much activity as possible because they're afraid of where their mind will go when they're not distracted. Is that something that you found to be particularly prevalent as well with your clients? Absolutely. A hundred percent. The busyness protects us from feelings. And again, that can be a good thing and not such a good thing, but when it is constant and extreme and all the time, it becomes, you know, very harmful. And how can that be good? Well, the way that that looks when it's good is, you know, for example, as a mom who runs a business and I have three kids, being busy really helps me from excessive worry (laughs) about my kids, for example, or fixating on other things. But when I am busy all the time, And I'm not making any space to feel the feelings, to feel the feelings about what do my kids need? What do I need? What am I worried? You know, all of the stuff that may be uncomfortable. Some of it may may be just fine to feel when I'm not making any, any space for that. That just becomes a very disconnected and dangerous place. And over time, people actually get really lonely. Because when we're just doing, 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 doing all the time, you know, we're not making space for those other ingredients, those really necessary ingredients in our lives of of connection, of stillness. And, you know, the reason why, for example, connection is hard to do when you're busy, 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 busy is because it really requires you to show up authentically. And to show up with your whole self, that means your feelings, your thoughts, your, you know, and if you're always productive, it's almost impossible to even access that version of yourself. And so what I found over the years was that people who were always busy and always doing were not only feeling like all the time that they were spending doing certain things, they were losing out on certain other activities, but it it, it led to a feeling of loneliness. And yeah, loneliness is a whole other kind of trajectory in terms of a conversation, but it was definitely a very, very common theme. I also think that, you know, sometimes a lot of achievement, as big of a blessing resources are to be able to, for example, hire people to help you with things and to pick up your kid or do this or do that you have to rely less on your community for support. And so just by nature of the fact that you don't need people as much, it changes the energy in your life. The ecosystem shifts and someone who doesn't have the resources to hire a nanny to pick up their kid and bring their kid home has to 
call the neighbor or call a friend and ask for a favor. And those moments of authenticity, of vulnerability, of being real are what make people feel connected. And that gives purpose and meaning and all those other things to our lives. And so sometimes as much of a blessing as the resources can be in our lives, and I don't mean to say that money is bad because I don't believe that. I just think to be asleep with money is bad. (laughs) We need to be awake as to the impact of our resources on our lives and what those resources give us and where they play out as a double-edged sword in our life. And if we are awake and aware to that, then we can find balance. It's not to say that you can't have enormous financial wealth and be incredibly fulfilled and happy and and balanced in your life. I, I think that is entirely possible and I see it in a lot of the people that we work with, but I think it requires a certain level of awareness and intention in order to cultivate that expression of abundance, that holistic expression of abundance, that material abundance and that inner abundance, that's wealth. That's interesting. So do you feel like having wealth that there's a responsibility associated with it to make sure that it doesn't imbalance your life? This is going to start to sound a little esoteric, but I think that money is is energy. And, you know, energy is something that we have to manage in our life and we when we have when we have a lot of it, it's a lot to manage. <laughs> it's a lot to manage responsibly. And so I think that when you are working hard to create a balanced life, money just becomes another variable within that ecosystem of things in your life that are important to you. We all need money. And so it's when money becomes an expression of self-worth or somehow a reflection of the success of our life that we really get lost. When we see it as one of the variables among a whole suite of variables in our lives that we value, right? So, you know, you value relationships, you, you know, value different, you know, you might value your physical health and well-being. You know, so like if you think of health as wealth, for example, then, you know, maybe it's the fact that you completed that triathlon that makes you feel really successful and happy. And and even if you're, you know, not having the greatest year financially, you're getting a lot of satisfaction out of this other variable in your life that's important. So I think it's important to think about all of the different areas of our lives that we place value on and work very hard, not, you know, it's a slippery slope. It's like quicksand with money. (laughs) And so this is all way easier said than done, but to the extent that we can back up a little bit and look at all, you know, look at that whole ecosystem of our life and, and, and put thought into what we truly value in life. Like a lot of people just don't even take the time to actually think about that. You know, or we think about the end goal and we forget about 
the journey to get there and what that will entail. I spoke with a really amazing woman who is a very successful businesswoman. She's a friend of my brother-in-law's. It's Rory Tahari who, who built this whole Tahari empire. And she's awesome. And I was talking to her about some business advice. And I said to her, I was trying to think about what my goal was in five years. And should it be this? Should it be that? And should it be this? And then she said to me, well, I have a question for you. How do you want to spend the next five years of your life? Right? Because we're talking about the goal, but if you're going to back into those goals, different goals are going to require different behavior. And so it's easy just to think about the goal and it's important to have goals, but let's also consider the journey. (laughs) And is that the journey that you want to take? And I think that 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 was probably one of the most powerful sort of ways that that question has ever been framed to me because once I thought about actually how I wanted to spend the next five years of my life, I was able to get a lot clearer on what was most important. And that informed my goal. We're bumping up against the hour and I want to be mindful of your time. But I I do want to ask, because I was spending a lot of time thinking about this, how do we have a healthy relationship with social media? And what do you advocate towards your clients through having some semblance of balance there? So one of the biggest things that I work with my clients on is unplugging at certain times during the day. I think social media, as we know, is is naturally very addictive. It's not inherently bad, but I think what we know is that it gives us the connections that we get on, that we have on social media, even with other people, they are lovely, but they don't make us feel less lonely or actually very much more connected in a meaningful way because true connection is all about authenticity. Um, So one of the reasons why, like, for example, teenagers and a lot of young adults are, are having this massive loneliness epidemic is because they're relying on social media for their connections. And it's so limited in terms of that. Not having your phone on your nightstand is pretty much like, the very first behavioral modification that we talk about. So plugging your phone in the kitchen at night, plugging it in your bathroom. Let's say, for example, you want to go to bed by 1030. If you can create some time for yourself in bed without your phone and arm yourself with a stack of books, you know, and and a notepad and some fun pens on your nightstand, you will find that just carving out even a small period of time to be more reflective, to find that stillness pillar, lying in bed and scrolling is not considered stillness. And that's the slope, that's the slippery slope that so many of us find ourselves on. And so first and foremost, I think just giving yourself a window where you are not connected each day is really, really huge. I think that, believe it or not, people really struggle to do that. That's how addicted we are. It's become so habitual that something actually feels wrong if it's not next to you, like something feels grossly out of place. And so practicing building up some tolerance, for example, if you're going out with your kids to the store and back home, like you don't really need your phone. If you know how to get to the store, if your children or your wife or whomever might possibly need you is with you, 
Like maybe just take a ride without your phone, go to the store, come home. So practicing by giving ourselves these little social media breaks, whether it's at the bookend of our day, morning and evening, or doing an errand like that is a really nice way to start to manage that. But I also think just remembering that social media, like anything, once it becomes in excess, it becomes very, very, very harmful to us. And like most things, if used in moderation, if you give yourself 30 minutes a day to have fun on your social media platforms and you block that time and you post and you engage and you like people's likes and you, you know, whatever you need to do, but that you create a time block for that. And you just like any other activity that you value in your life, it doesn't have to spill out into every moment. It can be really kind of compartmentalized is important too. Yeah, that's really helpful. We were talking before we started. My son has been, my four-year-old has been home because of COVID this week. I took him out to lunch on Wednesday, just the two of us. And I said, okay, well, I'm not going to take my phone out while I have lunch with him. And it was very hard. It was almost crippling, frankly, 45 minutes of not checking email and hitting the pellet machine to get my, my shot of adrenaline. And it was really disarming. And so it's something that I want to spend more time thinking about. Julie, I could spend another two hours with you, but (laughs) that's probably not possible. Thank you so much for taking the time. What is a way that people get in touch with you and, and maybe talk a little bit more about how you work with individuals and companies and firms, et cetera? Absolutely. So our website is namastewellness.com and we create really amazing mental wellness programs for all different kinds of organizations. We work with a lot of financial firms, a lot of law firms. We also work with startups and healthcare organizations, creating these multifaceted wellness programs to support mental health. And it's particularly vital right now, given the crisis that's happening in our world. And then on an individual level, I work and coach individual clients. And that is really you know, one of my all-time favorite things to do. And so I can certainly be reached to get more information about that one-on-one work. My email address is julie at namasteny.com. And I would encourage anyone out there who enjoyed the conversation to check out her book. She was kind enough to give me a copy and I tore through it. There's really terrific things in there. So I urge you to go check it out. And Julie, thank you again. I think part of my motivation behind doing this podcast is the realization that we're all broken vessels and we're trying to <laughs> put the pieces back together in a lot of ways, or I am, and figure out kind of you know who we are and where we're going. And the work that you're doing is a big part of that. So thank you for helping a lot of people. We really appreciate your time today. Yeah, you're so welcome. You know, I just want to share this one quote. It's a Viktor Frankl quote who wrote Man's Search for Meeting. He's a Holocaust survivor. And he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I just feel like right now we're in that space. And in this space is our power to choose our response. And I just love that because I think it's really important to remember that we do have the power to choose how we live our lives. Well, thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium, Julie. We appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.